Well, good morning. Uh, for those of y'all who don't know me, uh, my name is Tobias, and, and I am the Director of Adult Discipleship and Education here at Christ the King. But as of next week, I expect you to call me the Right Reverend Riggs. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> I've seen that on signatures, no. Um, it's a privilege for me to get to open up God's word for us this morning. Um, this morning we're going to continue our, uh, our time spent in the Psalms as we consider Psalm 86. Um, this Psalm is unique for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it's the only Psalm, uh, in book three of the Psalms that's attributed to David. And if you don't know, um, book three of the Psalms are those, uh, running from 73 to 89, and all of them except this one are attributed to either Asaph or to the sons of Korah or to a couple of Ezraites. Um, so when we come across David's voice in this collection, it's striking. Uh, another reason this psalm is unique is because it's one of only five psalms in the entire Psalter um, and the only one in book three that uses the word prayer in its title. And that's the way I'd like us to reflect upon it this morning, as a prayer lifted up to the Lord in the midst of deep personal anguish. So I'd invite you all to go ahead and open your copy of God's Word, Psalm 86, and you'll also see that it's projected on the screens in front of you. Friends, let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. And shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save 
the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you as needy people, and yet we come before you as thankful people as well because you have given us your word, and we know that your word is good for us. And so we ask now, Lord, that you will send your spirit to enlighten us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what, what you would have us this morning. Oh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> well, as I've reflected on this psalm this week, I've been thinking over and over again about the present situation we find ourselves in, both as a community and as a nation. It seems like every day something unsettling, something even more unsettling than the last unsettling thing makes the headlines. You know what I mean? I mean, who'd have thought that the arrival of a two-inch flying insect that bites its head off its prey and is called a murder hornet could be eclipsed so quickly? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but that's 2020 for you, isn't it? Friends, we're in the midst of a heated political season, and all signs point to it becoming more and more heated. Racial tension and division seem to be heightened hour by hour, and concerns over the spread of COVID have affected our daily lives in ways we couldn't really have imagined six months ago. Yes, we're here worshiping together, and praise the Lord for that. But we're split between two services. We're restricted in our celebration of the Lord's table and in our fellowship. And we're cautious about physical contact and unable to see one another's faces fully. And quite apart from these issues, I know that many within our community are suffering with the pain of more personal issues like job loss, acute and chronic illnesses, and relational strife. And in the midst of all of this, I just want to ask you this morning, how are you doing? I mean that sincerely. How are you doing? How are you coping with the unrest and uncertainty? How are you handling the disappointment and the loss? I imagine most of us, in some way or another, are feeling a bit weighed down by all of this. And perhaps we're struggling with feelings of frustration and fear, and, and maybe even anger. And it wouldn't surprise me, too, if in the midst of all of this, some of us were feeling distant from the Lord. But, you know, our current situation is not unlike what we see here in Psalm 86. You see, in this prayer, we hear David pouring out his heart to the Lord, asking him to hear his cry, and to shower him with his soothing grace. And although we don't really know the specifics about David's affliction, whether he was experiencing an intense season of persecution at the hand of Saul, or maybe someone else, perhaps even his own wayward son Absalom, when he tried to wrest the throne from his father, we don't really know. 
But perhaps the general nature of David's suffering invites us more readily to reflect upon our own suffering and to learn from him how to cast our anxieties upon the Lord as we experience trials. And so as we turn our attention to the psalm this morning, I'd like us to notice just a couple of things before we begin. First, I want to draw your attention to the way this psalm breaks itself up into three sections as David's focus in prayer progresses, first from himself in verses 1 through 7, and then onto the character of God in verses 8 through 13, and finally onto his persecutors in verses 14 through 17. Just notice that as we go. And secondly, although we're not going to spend a lot of time on the structure of the psalm, I do want to point out to you that there's a discernible pattern that David follows as he prays, especially in verses 1 through 7. You'll notice that he generally begins by requesting something from the Lord, and then he follows that request up by giving a reason for why the Lord should answer it. Uh, for example, in verse 4, you'll see that he says, gladden my soul. And then he gives the reason for it. He says, because he's lifting his soul to the Lord. And I think, friends, this is helpful for us. It's a helpful pattern for us to follow as we pray. It encourages us to approach the Lord with complete honesty, prepared not only to ask him for things, but to unburden our hearts to him as our Heavenly Father. Well, as we, as we begin, let's take a look at verse 1. And notice how David starts. He says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. He sets the tone of his prayer right from the beginning. David is poor and needy. But what exactly does he mean by that? Often in the Old Testament, we find these words poor and needy used together, not to identify a state of financial poverty, but rather to convey a sense of intense vulnerability and powerlessness. For example, earlier in the Psalms, in Psalm 35:10, we hear David saying, in the midst of persecution, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. You see, if the poor and needy were one with money, he wouldn't be robbed. Now, the point is he's vulnerable, he's helpless. And I think this is how we should understand these words here. You see, David has once again found himself in a position of utter helplessness. He's at his wit's end, and he's unable to see his way out of a terrible situation. And so what does he do? He turns to the Lord in prayer, and he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. And as he continues to pray, we begin to get a fuller sense of the severity of his situation. We hear him call it a day of trouble in verse 6. And it's such an overwhelming trouble that we hear him say in verse 3 that he's been crying out to the Lord all the day. In fact, in verse 13, we hear him liken his suffering to being in the depths of Sheol. In other words, it's like death itself. And in this first section... We hear him say in verse 2, Lord, preserve my life and save your servant. But friends, do you notice what David says about himself in verse 2? He says, for I am godly. This is a striking statement, isn't it? 
And I think it's apt to be misunderstood if we're not careful. After all, we might think that here David's claiming a position of righteousness in order to merit God's favor and deliverance. Kind of like the way we bargain with the Lord when we pray. You know what I mean? When we feel confident to ask him to do something for us, but only if we've been faithful in our worship attendance or in our acts of service or in our personal quiet times. Friends, this, is, this would be a mistake for us to take it this way. You see, the word godly here carries the sense of a servant's love for and commitment to his master. And so when David prays saying, for I am godly, he's reminding the Lord of his sincere devotion to him as his servant, which is a theme you'll notice he draws on throughout this psalm. But why would David focus on this aspect of his relationship with the Lord? Why would he be moved in the midst of his own suffering to remind the Lord of his devotion to him as a servant? Well, I think the Old Testament scholar John Goldingay is insightful here. Listen to what he says. He says, in this psalm, David places great emphasis on the fact that Yahweh is the Lord and that he is Yahweh's servant. But he does this in order to claim the support of his Lord. To be another's Lord puts one into a position of responsibility. The relationship means that the Lord has the resources and the obligation to support the servant. Did you catch that? He says that the Lord has the resources and the obligation to support the servant. Friends, David had a profound understanding of this. He'd been reared within the covenant community. He knew that the Lord had promised to be their God. And his thinking about God's character as the master of Israel had been shaped by the rich stories he no doubt cherished of the Lord's deliverance of his people, especially his deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh. It's not surprising then that we hear David in the midst of this prayer reminding the Lord of his commitment to his people with the words taken from the Exodus event. Notice what he says in verse 5. For you, O Lord are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. It's as if David were saying here, Lord, my forebears knew you to be such a loving master, one overflowing with unwavering devotion for your people and one mighty to save. Lord, be that for me as well, here and now. I trust in you and you alone. And you know, it's striking to me that David, as he begins to reflect on the steadfast, covenant-keeping nature of the Lord, or as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love, it's striking to me that he seems to immediately draw comfort and hope in the midst of his suffering. Take a look at verse 7 and notice that what began as a request in verse 1 O oh Lord, answer me, has at this point resolved into a confession of confidence in the Lord's deliverance. In the day of trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. Friends, there's so much for us to learn from the way we see David in just these first seven verses, approaching the Lord in his time of need. 
we don't see him grasping for control or asserting his own power as if he really had any. Nor do we see him denying the reality of his misfortune and adopting a sort of Pollyanna, just look on the bright side type of an attitude. Instead, we see him modeling for us the way of a devoted servant as he confesses his utter helplessness, submits himself to the Lord, and rests in the Lord's covenantal love for him, confident that he will answer him. What a comfort it is to know that the Lord will answer us in our time of need. Friends, do you believe that? Do you know that to be true? Have you experienced that peace that passes understanding and that only the Lord can provide? David says in Psalm 43, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Well, as we pick up the next section in verses 8 through 13, I, I want to draw your attention to how David's focus has now shifted off of himself and his present circumstances and onto the unique sovereignty of the Lord. Like Moses before him, who sang of the Lord's glorious deeds of deliverance in Exodus 15. Here, David's confidence in the Lord's sure deliverance from his own present affliction begins to overflow. And he breaks out in song in verses 8 through 10 saying, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Friends, did you catch that? He says, you are great. And do wondrous things. You alone are God. It's as if David were saying here, O oh Lord, your works alone prove that you're the one true God. If we would but reflect on them, even for a moment, we would all fall down before you in worship. And you know, it's striking to me how prophetic David's words sound here. After all, the Apostle John confirms there will come a day when all the peoples of the earth will indeed bow before the Lord. Listen to what he says in Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Well, as David continues to pray and to reflect on the unique sovereignty of the Lord, notice what he says in verse 11. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's a striking request, isn't it? Unite my heart to fear your name. Why would this be David's request? Why would his heart the heart of a devoted servant need to be united. Well, here again, I think John Golden Gay's comments are helpful. Listen to what he says. He says, perhaps implied in this prayer is just a hint that David's commitment to Yahweh had been affected by the difficulty of his daily circumstances. It seems like the temptation to put his trust in sources of strength other than his God would have been strong. 
But David was aware that if Yahweh is the only real God, as Yahweh's deeds indicate, then his heart cannot be divided. Yahweh's singleness needs to be matched by my undivided commitment of my person. And so David prays, unite my heart to fear your name. Friends, as we reflect on our past experiences of suffering or perhaps even our present trials, how often, if we're honest, do we see that our trust in the Lord has wavered as we've entertained thoughts of deliverance, comfort, and joy through means other than our master and savior? It's probably a lot, isn't it? And unfortunately, I think it's pretty easy for us to wander away from the Lord especially when we lose sight of his covenantal commitment to us and his unique power to meet our needs. And you know, David's self-awareness of his own potential to wander away from the Lord in times of trial is not unlike the Apostle Paul's confession in Romans 7, 18 and 19. You remember what he says? He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Friends, this is a glimpse into the divided heart of the apostle. And I think, if we're honest, it's a glimpse into our own hearts as well. But I want you to hear, I want you to listen to what this confession of inconstancy toward the Lord, leads Paul to say, just a few verses later in verses 24 and 25, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, like David who prayed, unite my heart to fear your name, Paul places himself in the Lord's hands and trusts in him alone for deliverance. And you know, it reminds me of a beautiful little poem written by the 17th century English bishop, Thomas Ken. It goes like this. Direct control suggests this day all I do and all I say, that all my powers with all their might in thy soul glory may unite. Unite my heart to fear your name. Well, as we turn our attention to that final section here in verses 14 and through 17, I want to draw your attention to the way David's focus has shifted once again, this time on to his persecutors. Notice what he says about them in verse 14. He says, O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. Did you catch what he says at the end there? He pinpoints the root of their wickedness. He says, they do not set you before them. And although we don't know specifically who David's assailants were, given what we do know about the difficulties David faced as a king, I think it's likely that these ruthless men were members of the covenant people of God perhaps even close relatives, who were grasping for control and lashing out in violence in the face of disappointment and uncertainty. They were not trusting in the Lord to provide for their needs, but instead they were relying on their own strength 
which is really nothing more than a subtle form of idolatry. And as a result, they became insolent and ruthless. And I'm reminded of what the psalmist says in Psalm 115.7. He says, those who make idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Friends, this has profound implications for the way we as a, co as a community of believers treat one another in the midst of trying times. When we suffer loss of power and position, when we experience pain and discomfort, when the plans we've made for our future come tumbling down, I think there's a real temptation for us to grasp for control by any means available rather than turning to the Lord. And you know, when we do that, like these insolent and ruthless men, we're in danger of devolving into the worst iterations of ourselves. We become impatient with one another. And we begin to nurture feelings of resentment and anger and pride. And you know, it's striking to me, having just gone through a series in James, it's striking to me that James, the brother of our Lord, links the infighting and wicked behavior among the people of God, which apparently had taken root in the people he was addressing. He links it to double-mindedness. That sounds an awful lot like a divided heart, doesn't it? So how do we avoid this? How do we train ourselves to depend upon the Lord rather than ourselves in the midst of the trials that we face? Well, again, I think we can learn a lot from the way David brings this prayer to a close. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Did you catch that last part? He says, give your strength to your servant. Friends, David recognized his own helplessness. And he understood that the Lord alone was able to give him the strength to endure his suffering. And so he turned to him and humbly asked him for strength. And you know, it reminds me of how we hear the Apostle Paul in the midst of his own affliction, turning to the Lord in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, saying, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Friends, what are you relying on to see you through your present circumstances? What people or things have replaced the Lord in your desire for rest and peace? Are you trusting in friends or family? However much they love you, they're imperfect sinners just like you, and they're going to disappoint you. Are you trusting in your wealth or your job? However wise and successful you've been, your position is uncertain. Friends, are you trusting in your intellect? However smart you are, your perspective is still fallible. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that true hope for lasting deliverance 
is not found in our own strength, but it begins in submission to the Lord. For we know that those who trust in anything other than the Lord for deliverance will be put to shame. But as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.6, The Lord is laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, that stumbling block is the Lord Jesus. Will you come to him and cast all your burdens upon him? The Lord Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are indeed weary, needy, and poor, and we are utterly dependent upon you. Oh, Father, keep us from forgetting that. Keep us from nurturing a false sense of security that comes from looking at our own feeble strengths. Help us, Lord, like David, in the times of trials that we face even now. Help us, Lord, to turn to you and to confess our dependence on you as your servants. And may our prayer be that of the psalmist who says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen.